Hello and welcome back to Why Morocco, a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to spotlighting some of the inspiring and creative personalities who share my love of the North African Kingdom of Morocco. My name's Mandy Sinclair, known online as Mandy in Morocco, and I'm the host of the podcast. As you sit back and listen, it's my hope that you'll leave feeling inspired to pay a visit or motivated to start planning that trip to the Kingdom of Morocco. On this week's episode, my guest, British-Moroccan author Saida Ruas, certainly left me inspired to consider and helped me define a writing project I've been thinking about for a while. She stopped by the studio following her TEDx Marrakesh talk to chat about writing her first book, Assembly of the Dead, a historical fiction set in Marrakesh in 1906. We also chatted about her soon-to-be-released sequel, The Library of Untruth, that sees the return of Farouk Alami, the detective we've met in her first book, but this time in Fez in 1912 at the start of the French Protectorate era. I first met Saida when I was assisting with the organization of a book reading and presentation of Assembly of the Dead at Café Clock Marrakesh. I picked up a copy and spent hours consumed in the book, imagining life in the Marrakesh Medina in 1906. While some areas of the Medina seem to have changed significantly, others, I feel, haven't changed at all. So let's listen in as Saida and I chat about historical fiction, Morocco in 1906 and 1912, and her British-Moroccan identity. So thank you so much, Saida, for joining me today. Uh, it was such a pleasure even to hear you spoke at TEDx uh, just last week, and it was a really interesting to hear you speak um, because you grew up in London, a stone's throw from where Jack the Ripper once roamed and became obsessed with the Moroccan Jack the Ripper that you discovered him whilst Googling serial killers in yep. <laughs> around the world is that right that's right yes just a kind of normal day of just googling serial killers <laughs> to a completely bizarre experience that brought me to morocco to to learn more about what they were calling at the time the moorish jack the ripper okay so, yes and so that eventually led to a book that you wrote called The Assembly of the Dead, mm-hmm. which follows a serial killer on the loose in the Marrakesh Medina in 1906. Um, can you tell me a bit more about like who was the Jack, Moroccan Jack the Ripper? Who were the women? What was life in the Medina like? Because I'm sure it's changed a lot in 100 years from what we see today. Um, yeah, so, I kind, so the Moorish Jack the Ripper is what I know of him was a man who lived in the Medina, who has a surname. I don't want to give too much away, but he has a surname that indicates from, he's from another part of Morocco. Um, he worked in the Medina and he had a fee, an elderly female accomplice who was helping him to coax these women into his property, um, inviting them to dinner. And then they would in some way be drugged. And then they, he, they would take off any valuables and, um, it's really difficult to know exactly what his motive was. Mm-hmm. There were quite a lot of women, the, the remains of the women were quite a few that were discovered. Um, and the newspapers really just said theft, theft. But I, I kind of think that there was probably more to it than that, simply because his, it, it, it was just the same type of person that they targeted, the same process of, of killing. And, and that's really all the newspapers said about him and the female accomplice except for the end of it where 
he was caught and the, the, the process of the investigation and his final punishment, which took place in Jemaifna. Mm-hmm. So the reason I called the book The Assembly of the Dead was partly because of this assembly of women that were, fell victim to him, but also because Jemaifna in English means the assembly of the dead. It's the place of, it used to be the place of public execution, which makes complete sense in that respect. So it just felt very, a, a very appropriate title for both the story and the nature of the crime. And I always think of Morocco or Marrakesh as, I always imagine it in 1906 as being just the Medina and the walls going around it. And, and you would never have had, the Galiz didn't exist. The outside of the walls would have been just farming land and gardens. And so I really kind of imagine that if you were traveling from another part of, Marrakech, of, of Morocco, you'd be traveling down and you'd reach Marrakesh when you arrived at one of its gates. And if you arrived under, uh, after sunset, you wouldn't gain access to the city. You'd have to wait until the next day when the doors were opened again. And so they were closed at night for security reasons. So it's a, it's a, it's a medieval city, essentially. And even today, I think if you go out in Marrakesh at 6 a.m. in the morning, it doesn't feel like much has changed in that respect. It's still the same alleyways. It's still the same medieval kind of culture. It's just the mopeds today give it this sense of modernization and chaos. But it, it would have been, very, it's, very di- it's very similar in that respect to me. I can still feel that medieval vibe about it because of that walled nature of it in the alleyways. So for me, it's just very, uh, it, it's just such a fascinating difference to how we live today. I completely agree. And I think there are certain areas that have more of a medieval feel. I think uh, Benahid North, like near the tanneries, uh, the Casbah still has a bit of a, an old feel. Um, so I'm just two questions. Um, Jack the Ripper, how did he enter the city if he weren't from here? Like, cause presumably the security would have been quite tight. No, do you know what he was, his purpose of coming to Marrakesh was? Well, he worked, he lived and worked here. So he may have just been somebody that relocated. Or he may have been moved here from, but from a tribe that wasn't originally from Marrakesh, mm-hmm. or not from uh, the city itself, but just further out of it. So he he had a job. He had. I'm not going to say what it was because I think that would give it away. But he had a job. He had um, a life in Marrakesh, and so there, there could have been a number of things that moved him, uh, led him to move and live in the city, or that he was born and raised in the city, but came from outside of it. I think what's interesting about Morocco in 1906, though, is the fact that there was a very there was a big distinction between the urban areas and any everything outside of it. So if you think of like Tangiers, uh, Fez, Meknes, the the kind of imperial cities, Marrakech, they were very urban in nature, and everything else was seen as uh, tribal territory. Mm-hmm. That was power was always shifting between the t- tribes, and it was seen as lawless, but actually it was just power constantly being distributed across different people and different uh, tribes as they were emerging as powerful. So it's a a really, there was a big distinction between if you were kind of part of the urban life of Morocco, if you were out in the kind of deserts or in the, uh, up the Atlas Mountains. So it's a really fascinating time in Morocco, Moroccan history for me. And so when you were researching, you were sitting in, you said your office in the Gulf. And then you Googled this, but then where did you, did you come to Morocco to find the newspaper articles? Were the international papers covering this? Yep. So I, I, I think I found initially online, I, I found about three or four newspaper clippings, 
from uh, British newspapers and American newspapers. So it was reaching US news. Um, A a lot of the articles came from the Times, which made sense because you had Walter Harris in Tangiers reporting on Morocco for the Times. So it's, it's possible that Walter Harris was the reporter, but there's no... I can't verify that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found these three or four clippings online and basically exhausted everything that I could find online. And then I decided I needed to verify that they were at, they, they were from those newspapers and not some kind of made-up internet thing. And so I went to the British Library in, in London and, then, and looked through all the newspapers from that period, so from about February 1906 till about June 1906 tracing uh, the story in all of these different newspapers as it was being picked up Uh and found quite a few more. And then I also went up to the American legation in Tangiers, which has the Maghrib al-Aqsar, I think, newspaper, which was the only English newspaper in Morocco at the time. And they have all the archives of that and leafed through that and again found more clippings of the story there. And and so I just ended up with an, a mass of newspaper stories about this Moorish Jack the Ripper. Uh-huh. And at that point, I felt like there is a story here that I need to see through to its very end. Wow. I think, okay, you're kind of convincing me to <laughs> start researching. Like, I think historical fiction, well, I, first of all, I love reading historical fiction. What What's it like to write? It's, it's both kind of fascinating and very and quite terrifying at the same time because one of my biggest fears would there be was that I'd write some kind of historical inaccuracy mm-hmm. and so I was constantly trying to verify little details and and that's quite a scary thing I don't know I'm not particularly versed in Moroccan history but I know a lot about 1906 now, <laughs> so I feel like, ask me anything about 1906 Morocco, and I can probably tell you. Ask me 1904, not so sure. So, so it's just it's such a it's such a, a learning curve to to just deep dive in this on this one time in history and to get down into the gritty details of it, and it and it just becomes a world that you can totally visualize in your head yeah. because you're just constantly filling. Um, your that world with detail and information the more that you read and the more that you find out and then you know the kind of you start looking at pictures of the era and you start getting a sense of how people lived and, and you just you find these obscure bits of information that you you think oh god I've got to feed this into the story because it's so fascinating but then you also at some point have to say to yourself enough research I just have to write it now because it never feels like you always feel like there's something just around the corner, yeah. some really interesting historical fact just around the corner that you just need to read a bit more to get to. And and, that, and so you have to really find a cutoff point for yourself mm-hmm. where you go, I'm just going to, I like really saturated myself with this information. And now I need to weave it into a narrative of some sort and trust that I fill in gaps as I go. Mm-hmm. So you're always, you're always fighting this. It's not enough. It's not enough. Let me yeah. keep reading. <laughs> uh-huh. Because presumably um, there was no one still alive that could provide background information or has heard, like a firsthand tale from a mother or father. Because this wasn't the type of story that you would hear on Jim Elfna, is it? Mm-hmm. I, I've kind of done loads of follow-on research mm-hmm. to try to to find that. So when I moved to Marrakesh 
and spent about six months living in the Medina. Um, and just everyone I met, I asked them, have, do you, have you ever heard of the Moorish Jack the Ripper? And, you know, people kind of smile at you and make quick exits. And they're like, what are you Because it's a quite a bizarre question to ask a random person that you're just having a co- coffee with. Yeah. But you just, you, you, I presume it would be in the oral history of the city. But it, I didn't find a single person who, who had heard of the story. Uh, over time, I've met people that have said, I'm, I've, I've come across that story myself. And I did go in and look at the archives in Rabat, the National Archives in Rabat, and I couldn't find anything there. And I've spoken to this person about it. And so there, there, there isn't, I've no, not met anyone. But what's interesting from what I've read about Morocco in 1906 is that generally speaking, uh, court cases weren't necessarily documented. So you'd have a trial, but it wouldn't necessarily be documented on paper with record. So quite often it would be in front of a judge and the the outcome was announced mm-hmm. and that was and then it would, was executed whatever the outcome was. Mm-hmm. Um, so there might not be a kind of paper trail of it either, which would made sense to me in terms of why I couldn't find any other records of the Morris Jack the Ripper, mm-hmm. that they, it just didn't seem to exist in any archives or anyone else that I'd spoken to had done PhDs on Morocco yeah. of that period. And right, I've never come across this story myself. So it's a it's a strange thing because you feel like, is there one document somewhere or one person somewhere who knows this? And I just haven't found them. <laughs> yeah. But then that kind of brings me to, in general, is there much historical fiction written about Morocco? Um. Because it just seems to me that it's more factual mm. stories or first-person accounts. Yeah, I don't. I haven't. I haven't come across a lot of modern historical fiction mm. about Morocco, which I find quite interesting mm. as well. Because I think it's so rich with yeah. with there's so much history. I think the geography of Morocco means it's it's one of those places that where so many different cultures have crossed paths, mm. and so there's so much to say about it. But I haven't come across much historical fiction fiction. I think there's a lot of uh, memoirs written in that era from European travellers and there's a, a whole host of those that you can read up about and exactly. they're quite good for the historiography of Morocco. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And so just going back to Morris Jack the Ripper, uh, who were his victims? All I know is that they were women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's literally all I ever found yeah. out. That yeah. was all all that was ever recorded about them. I know nothing else. I found no other record or no other detail about their lives, except for they were women that had crossed his paths for some reason. I don't even know the reason. Mm -hmm. And literally nothing more, which is one of the the bugbears for me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did a really good job in the, because I read the book, obviously, um, after you spoke at Cafe Clock. Um, You did a really good job of, Creating a personality for them and what they might have been doing out and about that would have brought them to his attention. Yeah, it was really important for me to write them as characters in the book. And it was quite a struggle to think about how do I write these women as characters if they are dead, essentially. You know, like how do I do that? And so I felt like I needed to bring them to life because the one thing I didn't want to do was... Uh, affirm the way history had treated them by only documenting their gender and the way, the nature in which they died. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make them whole and real people yeah. to try and correct that, even if it was just this kind of fictional telling and made up version of their lives. Mm-hmm. I felt like I needed to do that 
in the story to 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 add some kind of you know some texture to who they were as well to think about them as people and not just this total number of women that he exactly. had like kind of had fallen victim him yeah. victim to him so an identity of some sort definitely in your TEDx Marrakesh talk you did speak about um Moroccan women you know as being strong and resilient women, uh, but if we're to talk about identity, we need to understand that some people um, have their identity formed for them, and this comes from some kind of power above. Can you tell me a bit more about what you mean about that? Yeah, sure. I think I mean, like, as a woman, mm-hmm. I think I've, you, you, and, I, and it's not just women, obviously, but I think you, there are kind of social norms and expectations about who you are and who you're allowed to be. And you, you have to, you, you grow within those constraints that are placed on you by your society. Mm-hmm. And, and I think because of that, your identity isn't, it's not completely self-determined. And I think self, having a self-determined identity is a privilege for a lot of people that we may not scrutinize and question. And I guess I just meant that, that for me, you know, I've had to, I've grown as a woman within the context of the norms and uh, that are expected of me as a British woman, as a Moroccan woman, and having to resist those a little bit. And I've seen that amongst the Moroccan women who raised me. And I, and I think we, it's really important that we acknowledge that when we talk about identity and when we write about people as well is that some of us have had to kind of live in that shadow of other people or other expectations and that struggle to exist has also influenced who we are and and what I've seen amongst Moroccan women that I know is that there's a there's a resilience to that and there's a strength to that 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 just shines through so much that I can't deny it you know I can't deny that it exists and it's there and to not write it or not to to, to acknowledge it would be a disservice to them. And I think that's, that's a, to me, that's a really important part of any kind of conversation about who we are, is who are we allowed to be and how much have we had to fight those kind of expectations to become the people that we want to be. Really influenced how I wrote these women as well, yeah. is thinking about, well, who were they? What would, what would be the normal expectations of them in their lives in Marrakesh in 1906? And does that change who they were? Does that mean they would have been weak or would they still be strong but constrained? Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and that kind of, that mixture of power and self is a really important, uh, it's just such an important thing for me to acknowledge, I think. Mm-hmm. Because you were um, born in the UK and then you would come to Morocco on summer holidays and to visit family and whatnot. Completely. We, yeah. we were, you know, like European Moroccans quite often, you know, at the end, the kind of last, last day of school, your parents would kind of bundle you into the, the car and then you just start the journey to Morocco and you're on the road for four or five days and then you kind of get thrown out and then you're in Morocco and you're like, oh my God, it's hot. And we're going, <laughs> you know, you just have your summers in Morocco. And that was pretty much our summer every summer until you know I was old enough to go I'm just going to take a flight now (laughs) can I just fly please so and that's that's a whole tradition of European Moroccans that have done that and still do that today um did writing this book then deepen your understanding or confirm or deny any beliefs you may have had about Moroccan culture 
I just think it kind of made me really value um, that. It just made me see Morocco in a completely different light. You know, like it's like I think as a child, it was something my parents were. Mm-hmm. My parents were Moroccan, which meant I had to eat this kind of food and I, we had to do these kind of things. But and we had they had to try we had to speak Arabic. Um, and because there's, I grew up in a big family, we just wanted to speak English. We were in East London. Mm-hmm. And so to me as a child, being Moroccan meant just making sure my parents were happy or, you know, that I was just being who they needed me to be as a Moroccan child. They're trying to give us their heritage and for it not to be forgotten. And I think as an adult, Morocco was always a place that I'd just come and have a nice holiday that I knew and that was easy. Um, but since like discovering the Morris Jack the Ripper and then writing the book, I've it's just opened up a whole world of understanding about the country that I just didn't have before, like how steeped in history it is and how ancient mm-hmm. its history is and how rich its heritage is mm-hmm. and also just how resistant it is as well. The, the one thing that I found so fascinating about 1906 Morocco was also the internal resistance that was formulating against this imminent French protectorate, that it wasn't something people were happy about, you know, and there was this kind of underground, like, um, awareness of it that was throwing the country into chaos, but also people looking for ways to subvert it. And and I just, and it's just such a, it's just so fascinating that I don't think I will ever fully understand it but I've come to respect it so much more Mm -hmm. than I ever did before. It's now, it feels like it's now part of who I am. Whereas before it felt like an experience that I could tap into or I can kind of, you know, trigger, I can trigger that part of my identity by doing certain things. Whereas now it feels like just it's part of my, of my daily life in that respect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're working on your next book and it's set in Fez. Is that Mm -hmm. right? Is there, can you reveal any details about the plot or when it's going to be released? Um, Yes. So the next book. So in the first book we have Farouk Alami, who's almost like a, an independent investigator Mm -hmm. and, in 1906, there wasn't a police force in Morocco. So quite often, a, a, the judge, a qadi or the mahsin, they might uh, delegate a, a, an individual to go and investigate something and then to report back to the court. Mm-hmm. And so Farouk is almost like this kind of character who's who goes out because he's been given that responsibility to find something out. So the book, the second book jumps to 1912 and Farouk has been called from Tangiers to report to Fez by the Sultan, who's Muli Hafid at this time. And it's set in that those weeks when Morocco becomes a French protectorate. So it's set around the 30th of March when the Treaty of Fez was signed. And Morocco is now a French protectorate. And what I find really fascinating about that time is not long after that, I think it was two weeks later, there was an eclipse of the moon. And people saw that as an omen of a bad omen because of the protectorate and within the Askar or the, the army, the, a small contingent of army, they rebelled in Fez and mutinied and went out and just targeted European residents in Fez. So there was this period of like quite a bit of violence. I think there were like 72 European residents that were killed, 300 Moroccans died. And it was just this kind of resistance and this, uh, violent reaction to the protectorate mm-hmm. being declared, but also the 
the eclipse kind of triggered that. Farouk is called from Tangiers to Fez to, he doesn't know why, but he turns up in the midst of this chaos. And beyond that, it's, I'm not quite sure where I'm going to go with it yet, but I know that it's set around that and it's set around the Carolian Library. Mostly because the, I think there was a kind of scholarly crisis going on in Morocco in 1912 as well, where this uh, uh, European influence was affecting how people understood the religion as well, because they were want they were looking for solutions to ways of resisting the influence of Europe in religion and in other in other forms of resistance, and so I'm. I'm setting it around this Caribbean and within this co- conflict of um, how do we resist this from and do can we find inspiration from within our traditions to resist it? And so it's set in that kind of backdrop. Oh my gosh. And so when can we expect that? Because I want to read it now. <laughs> oh God, I have no idea. Right, so I'm hoping sometime next year, so 2020, oh. I hope so. Okay. Yeah. And it's with That's the, the same. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you have a fascination with serial killers. Um, are there any other topics that you may be interested in writing about um, with in relation to Morocco in the future? Um, I don't know. I think it's really hard to... At the when you've kind of, I've still got so the the, the Farouk Al Alemi is now a trilogy. So the, uh, after the second book, I'll write a third book set in Chef Sharoun, hopefully in nineteen twenty one. And at the moment, I've got these two mountains to climb. Yeah, <laughs> so I literally, and so I'm trying not to. There's so much that I'd love to do, but yeah. I kind of I'm trying to take it one step at a time and not. Uh, you know, allow myself to be carried away. But I think there's so much potential to write so much about Morocco that I, you could never exhaust. Uh, you'd always find some kind of inspiration for a creative project here. And so I I would never um, think that I'm done. I'd always hope that this, I'm, I'm sure I could just step outside and find something else that would inspire me. For me, I just, um, as I walk through Casablanca, that down, have you been in the downtown core with all the art deco? For me, I think those buildings and the old hotels have so many stories to tell. I'd love to read a book yeah. about 1930s Casablanca, all the theaters and who was performing and who was staying in those hotels. I think that would be really fascinating. Please don't give me ideas. <laughs> I'm going to get carried away and spend like two weeks researching and reading. (laughs) You're giving me ideas. No, you should do it. You definitely should write it, please. (laughs) Then it would give me a reason to go live in Casablanca, actually. I do love that city. Um, Will you then, you came to Marrakesh then to do the research for the Assembly of the Dead. Will you also move to Fez when you're ready to start more of the writing and the detail, finer details? I don't think I'll be able to move to, to Fez this time just because of other commitments, but I've been going back and forth to Fez whenever I had the opportunity over the last year or so. Mm-hmm. So I think I've been there about two or three times since. I think I will try to at least spend a month in the city and I know it quite well because I've been going for quite a few years. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I feel like I will have to, at some point, uh, go there for at least a month just to walk around. And, and I think it's really important to do that, just to soak up 
the the character of the place and the atmosphere. One one of the things for me with Marrakesh is that living in the Medina completely changed my perception of what the Medina was up until that point. And I don't feel like I fully grasped that with Fez. So I'm looking forward to going and spending a lot more time there, I think. Yeah, because I remember um, when I heard you speak about the book uh, Cafe Clock, you had said that you would get up and walk uh, through the Medina at six o'clock in the morning just to get a feel for how the the city came to life, I guess. What did you discover, I guess, when you were wandering at that time? I think it's it's that difference between when you experience Marrakesh as a, as a tourist visiting for a short time and as somebody who's living there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really learned about Marrakesh from living there was that, yes, it's like fascinating and it's exotic. And if you're seeing it for the first time, it feels like this totally alien place that has just this like really difficult to decode if you don't know it but when you live there you you start seeing this underbelly to it you know this kind of struggle that people are going through but Mm -hmm. and this and this daily life that people living and it's and it has the same complexities that you would have in any city anywhere it just happens to be a walled medieval city and for me when I was writing Assembly of the Dead, that was really important, was like capturing the darkness that comes with living in a walled place, you know, that kind of, um, that sense of claustrophobia that you can sometimes feel if you spend too much time in the Medina. You're like, I just need to get out of these walls, you know, all of those things. So I think it's behind the the kind of, you know, the the really interesting stuff that happens on GMF9 in terms of the entertainment, there are people that are living their lives that are hustling, Mm-hmm. And for me, that was a really important and interesting thing about it that I don't think I would, it would have always been novel and a kind of a, a novelty. But when, after a while you, you living there, I just saw it in this, this totally different light that there's something in the water almost that you can feel, <laughs> you know, that you're like, actually there's a, there's, this is a place of hustle. You know, this is a yeah. place of survival. Mm-hmm. And if I, and you have to write that a little bit into it. So for me, the Marrakesh of 1906 is dark. It's, it's desperate. It's, you know, it's, it's claustrophobic. It's, it's tension as well. And, 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 and I found that really fascinating because you feel it when you're living there a little bit. Yeah. Just because of the walls, I think. The walls. And I did live in the Medina for, I think, two years. I, I would, I lived and worked in the Medina. And there were times where I wouldn't go outside of the, the walls for six days. And then, go home and yes, you can go on a roof terrace or whatnot, but you don't see out. So it, it can get claustrophobic and it is a hustle and it's, it's always bustling. It seems even the quiet, like residential quarters might, you know, be quite quiet from say 11 o'clock on, but then you can go to another part like Jamal Fanon and it's still hustling there until like two o'clock in the morning. So it doesn't really ever slow down and and I think that's the one thing that I realized what I I came to appreciate even more is the Riyadhs I totally understand why you would have this kind of internalized courtyard in a in a place with so much hustle that you walk in and it's your own personal sanctuary Mm -hmm. you know and I really uh, appreciated that more living there Mm -hmm. that you can't get out but you can go in yeah. And you can find some kind of internal calm 
and uh, and it, it kind of almost the, the hustle can become invisible to you a little bit. So I really began to understand the architecture of Marrakesh and that tradition a bit more in terms of what it gave its residents, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, that difference between the street and your home. And you, you kind of value those things. And I think those things are something that you learn from experiencing them. Yeah. When you kind of sigh a breath of relief when you walk into your yeah. bit, and you're like, oh, God, it's calm. <laughs> so it's, it's so fascinating. It's so layered mm-hmm. in that respect. So it's, it's, just, it's just incredible to, to discover those things, I think. And any um, plot details about the Chef Chowen book? I think currently I, with my publisher, we've talked about calling it the Caravan of Despair. Maybe, maybe because I'm quite, I'm quite interested in this idea of, um, like from Tangiers, that the, the, the European residents of Tangiers during hunting season would like to go off hunting in the mount, in the reef and in the, um, in the north of Morocco. And I'm quite interested in the idea of maybe a, a hunting group being abducted or something like a, a group mm-hmm. of European hunters on an on a, during the season yeah. being abducted by and it's set in, I'm, I'm thinking of setting it within that 1921 reef rebellion it's that's okay it's, it comes something around that that's just the kind of image I have in my head at the moment but I haven't thought beyond that or even begun the research on that so. well- Okay, as a creative, I don't actually understand how you can write books and you still have a full-time job. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a it's a difficult thing to do. <laughs> it's a constant balancing act. And I think part of the reason it's taken me so long to to write the second book is because I've been struggling to maintain that balance. But um, I know that this year I, I've, I've made space to be able to focus on the writing more, which is fantastic. I feel so privileged to be in a position to be able to go, right, I can actually put my mind to this now and give it the attention. You always feel like you're not doing it justice in that respect. I'm not giving the writing the justice because it takes so much uh, of your energy and it takes so much of your your thought that you, you want to do the best job that you can do and experience it as fully as you can experience it. And I feel like I haven't done that so far, but I'm hoping that this year I, I'm going to be able to do that a bit more. Well, I'm sure that's kind of like the constant battle with artists, isn't it? Like trying to find the time and the money and the whatever else struggle comes their way that limitations that um, come up. But um, thank you so much for, for stopping by. I think that's really what you're doing is amazing. And the historical fiction, please keep going with it because I just, I can lay in bed and just read your book uh, so quickly and, and put myself in the, the Marrakesh Medina and imagine. Um, so you've really done a great job of bringing your research and the historical facts into a very uh, page-turning book. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like I've said to somebody before that once I've written these three, these, are the, these three books are my tribute to my Moroccan heritage. Mm-hmm. And once they're done, I just want a break. <laughs> Like once I've done them, I'm not going to like read anything about Moroccan history for, for, well, for a bit. I'm going to take some time off from that and maybe see. I'm going to go and do something else for a little bit and then maybe come back to it. But yeah. it's such a it's such a pleasure also to be able to bring that to life. And and when I meet people that have read Assembly of the Dead and talk about Marrakesh in that context, it's so lovely to know that people have 
look at the city a little bit differently now because of understanding that history or yeah. that, that, that the lives of people in that time. Yeah. And, and, and I think people, I hope that when people read it, they look at the Medina and they experience the Medina a little bit differently as a result. And if, I, if they do, then I feel like it was all worth the long nights yeah. <laughs> yeah. at the laptop. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you so much and best of luck with your next novel. If you're a fan of getting off the tourist trail and planning to be in Marrakesh, join us for one of our Tasting Marrakesh food and cultural tours. On our Tasting Marrakesh Gilis tour, we explore some of the 20th century architecture in Marrakesh, stop at some of our favorite art galleries housed in Art Deco gems, and wander through parks and religious buildings that surprise visitors who dare to venture beyond the Marrakesh Medina. We chat history, eat street food, and shop. You know, some of our favorite things. But don't just take it from me. Condé Nast Traveler recently included this tour on its roundup of 10 cool things to do in Marrakesh. Our website is tasting-marrakesh.com for more details. That's Marrakesh with a C-H. But for now, it's time to say see you next month. I'll be taking a short break from podcasting, PR consulting, and food touring to explore Eastern Europe for one week at the beginning of April. In the meantime, if you want to discuss a collaboration or partnership, please feel free to get in touch via my website, mandyandmorocco.com. And if you're a fan of My Morocco, I would be so grateful if you would rate and review this podcast on your favorite channel or spread the love by sharing on your social media networks. Until next time.